Hey guys, it's Drew from Spun, the supernatural, paranormal, unexplained network. Be sure to listen to episode 30. But for now, here's one weird Welshman, one wacky yank, and one wonderful podcast. Enjoy. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 57 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Hi everybody. Thank you to Drew from Spun for that intro and I see he got a little plug in for his episode 30 that we interviewed them on. Well of course he did. (laughs) Gotta do it, gotta do it, take every opportunity as you can. We would. Uh, We would, we (laughs) totally would. I mean, you plug our show all the time. Gotta do it. (laughs) Somebody's gotta do it. Talking about plugging... If you want to do an intro for us, please feel free to do so. All you've got to do is record it on your phone or whatever device you want and send it to mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk and we will put it on the top of the show so that you can be famous just like Drew from Spun. Anyway, so who have we got with us today? Well, we have an author all the way from Yorkshire to tell us about his new book, Haunted Yorkshire. Please welcome to the show, Nick Tyler. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. Good morning. How are you too? Yeah, we're really good. Thank you for joining us on this Saturday morning. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we got to say that you sent us a copy of the book, which we thoroughly enjoyed. It definitely left you wanting to read the next story, the next account. You know, I think you've got a really good way of capturing a reader's attention and, and dragging them through the story with you. So thumbs up for that. Dragging them. Lovely. Thank you. Nice <laughs> Drag it. You drug them through. Not, not that uh, you inspired them and they wanted to read. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> so okay. I, th- I think we'll go with inspire. That's a, yeah, that's a exactly. nice way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. My grasp of the English language is why I'm not an author. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your background, Nick. So I started writing short paranormal stories probably about 10 years ago now and just doing a bit of self-publishing myself and then I got really interested in the parapsychology kind of side of the old genre which is basically a little bit more about trying to understand why people think the way they think and believe in what they believe and trying to see if there's any natural and normal reasons for them things before you immediately start to look to the paranormal side which I find an absolute fascinating topic. And it's something that sort of developed into these books when I started writing the short stories for them. And then eventually a publisher got in touch from reading a couple of the short stories on Amazon and asked if I'd be willing to expand from my local area and write the book that is now Haunted Yorkshire. And that's where we ended up. And it is a very well-written book. Thank you very much. You said, obviously, you had a background and interest in it. Was there any specific inspiration that made you think, I'm actually, you know, I'm going to start putting these stories together? To be honest, yeah, there were. Quite a strange story. A friend of mine is absolutely obsessed by ghosts and spirits and, and all these talking boxes and Ouija boards and everything else. So I used to sort of go with him when he wanted to go out looking for whatever we were looking for. And one day we were parked in Doncaster outside um, a cemetery. And he was adamant that this place was haunted. So we sat there for around probably an hour, hour and a half, and absolutely nothing happened at all. It was probably one of the most boring nights of my life, to be honest. <laughs> that's, that's a classic ghost hunt night, that is. <laughs> exactly. And then as it went, I ended up, I stepped out of the car, and I had a fag. And I finished my fag, and I flicked it on the floor, but I didn't put it out. And I got back in the car, and suddenly my friend's going, wow, can you see that in front of us? And I looked, and it was literally my cigarette was on the left side of the curb, and the smoke were just blowing off in front of the car. And it did sort of take a strange shape as it blew, but, it, you know, regardless of the shape, it was just cigarette smoke. 
And he was adamant that it was a spirit in front of us. And he literally went white as a sheet and wheel spun out of the air. <laughs> and he, to be honest, I don't know if he'll hear this, and I, I kind of hope he doesn't in a way, because I've never told him that it was actually just a cigarette that we saw that night. Well, that was sort of the thing that really spurred my interest in it. And I thought, you know, do people see what they want to see or is there genuinely sometimes something more to it? It's funny because people do the same, in my opinion, with orbs. A lot of the times, you know, you'll get an investigation or whatever and people put all of these photos and videos out and say, oh, that's an orb. You know, do you see that orb? It's it's moving with intelligence. Yes, because there's a breeze behind it. It's a bit of dust or it's a fly orb. People get absolutely obsessed with orbs. Really obsessed i don't i really don't see the big thing about orbs i've yet to be convinced when it comes to orbs i've got to say the thing is with an orb it was sort of most haunted that really brought orbs into the forefront of the paranormal and they are light anomalies and they are quite interesting in certain factors but for an orb to be taken seriously from a scientific point of view it needs to have a clear nucleus in the middle right somewhere where the energies just seem to have formed from absolutely out of nothing and just occurred I'd say probably 95, if not more, percent of the orbs that we see these days can all be put down to dust and insects and, you know, anything else that just sort of flares up a camera. Yeah. There's very few that you will actually sort of um, zoom in and investigate and you will see a clear nucleus. But if there is a nucleus in the centre, so it looks like it has actually developed from nothing, then they do become a little bit more interesting. But they are few and far between, to be fair. I was working in a chip shop. And uh-huh. one of the people that worked there, well, and it had cameras, you know, throughout the store. Yeah. One of the girls came running to me in the back going, there's somebody out there. There's somebody out there, but they're not out there. Come and look at this camera. Look. And it was a fly sitting on right. the lens of the camera. But when you actually did look at it mm-hmm. on the screen, it really did look like there was somebody standing there. Yeah, yeah. But I saw the fly. I knew it was there. So it was really, I mean, I, I can see how things like that happen. The whole paranormal is, is built on belief. The entire topic is built on a matter of belief. There's a chapter in there about pareidolia, which is... Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. Basically, pareidolia is the way in which your mind will find patterns in any random event first and foremost faces if you look at any abstract picture or a landscape or clouds your mind will always try and form a face from something that's not Mm. there and that's just how our brains are wired up and obviously if they can't see a face then they start trying to look at different and other things and pareidolia is is the biggest reason for, for ghost stories because people sort of they might see something in the peripheral which is actually nothing more than maybe a little light flare in the room or it can, it can be absolutely anything normal, and they will assume it's a ghost. They can look at orbs are a fantastic example. They see orbs, to them it's, it's a ghost, and it's, it's, it's not at all. Biggest one for me is the paranormal pictures that people send me quite regularly to have a look at. And you will always see, they're always ambiguous pictures. You know, they might be in a graveyard or something like that, and there might be a gravestone in the background that's slightly lit up with the camera light. And then to them, they see it as, oh, it's, it's proof that there's a ghost standing there, whereas in actual fact, it's quite an everyday normal object that they've perceived to be something it's not. One of the pictures in your book, uh-huh. specifically the icicle one. All right, yeah, yeah. That was so weird. I can imagine being home, you know, at night by yourself and you look out your window and that's sort of what you see, you know? <laughs> 
that's the exact reason I decided to include that picture because I thought all it basically was, as I put, was just uh, water dripping from the gutter in. It was so cold, it was icing as soon as it touched the other ice and it built up and it kept building and building and building until it looked like a form. Yeah. <laughs> and I just figured, you, know, you could just imagine perhaps driving home, you've been out to dinner or whatever that night and you're driving home, it's dull and dark, you've got your car lights on, you glance up and all of a sudden you see a guy sitting outside your house. And, yep. <laughs> you know, yeah, terrified. But then obviously, closer inspection, you see it's, it is what it is, it's just ice. But it happens to us all, doesn't it? Oh, of course, you know, yeah. when you're a kid, I, I can remember as a kid being in my bedroom at night and I used to suffer terribly with nightmares when I was a child. My parents, uh-huh. wouldn't, my parents wouldn't let me watch anything that was even vaguely frightening because they yeah. knew it would haunt me for weeks. I can remember lying in my bedroom at night and you'd look around your room and ordinary everyday things would become these really frightening faces or forms or whatever and you turn the light yeah. on and it's your computer system or it's a teddy bear or it's something that you know in in the light of day yeah just just a quite normal object exactly exactly so everything's scary under a coat of darkness yeah yeah <laughs> so rather than just regurgitating the stories very often throughout the book you talk about extra bits of investigation that you've done alongside it that will support the story for instance how long did it actually take you the project from the start and to the end of this project i know that obviously your published date is still to happen but how long has it taken you so far i would say probably around 18 months the actual writing part was relatively quick because it's something that just sort of comes natural to me and I enjoy doing. So I can blast out quite a lot of words in a short time. But as you said, you know, driving the length and breadth of Yorkshire from my base in Sheffield was quite a time-consuming activity. A lot of fun, but it wasn't it wasn't done overnight. Did that friend go with you? <laughs> <laughs> he came to a couple of spots with me, but the vast majority I decided to go to by myself. I just thought it'd uh, make for a more clearer book. <laughs> so have you ever experienced anything paranormal yourself? Tough question. I think I've experienced things that I can't explain, whether or not I would call them paranormal. I suppose by definition they're unnormal, so therefore they might be, but I don't know. I'm still sitting on the fence, I think. Jury's still out on that. Yeah, I've, I've seen shadows where there shouldn't be shadows, and you know, I've, I've heard what sounded like voices and things in places that they they just shouldn't have been there but then at the time you're petrified but then I sort of come back and I I, I run it back over in my head and I keep replaying it and replaying it and the more that you do that the more normal it becomes so it's it's quite a tough one. So in the book you cover quite a well-known case which is the 30 East Drive case in Pontefract. Uh Yep. Can you tell some of our listeners who may not be familiar with that story about that story? So the semi-detached house on East Drive, number 30, was built in the in the 50s, in the late 50s, I think. A normal house on a normal street, absolutely nothing that you would assume to be paranormal in any way. The first family that lived there, we don't know a great deal about, but the family after them that moved in were called the Pritchards. And quite soon after living in, the Pritchards claimed that some quite strange Strange things happened. This was during the early 1960s. They said that the grandmother, for instance, was looking after the Pritchard's son called Philip, who was 15 years old at the time. And she claimed that chalk dust kept appearing in thin air, as if about shoulder height of an average man, she claimed, as if someone was sort of, you know, dusting the chalk from nowhere. This was seen as well by Philip, which became quite a, you know, an unusual thing. But it was sort of put down to, maybe it was dust, it could have been anything. And then as the weeks went on, more and more things started to happen. They kept finding pools of water in the kitchen. 
just appearing from nowhere and not in the places you'd expect, like underneath the sink, but they, they were literally scattered all over the kitchen. So this went on for a little while and they wasn't too sure what the cause was. They wasn't at this point thinking it was paranormal in any way. And then as time went on by, they claimed that the water was replaced at one bit. It's like something straight out of Ghostbusters. They claimed the green slime started to come out of the taps. So at this point, people started to take a bit more interest in the case. And uh, I think the it wasn't national news at this point, but local newspapers started to get involved and, and writing it up. But then again, on the other hand, we have to bear in mind it was back in the 60s, so people didn't have the camera phones and everything else that they've got mm. these days, which sort of, in one way, adds to the romance of a ghost story for me, but then in, in a scientific way, it can take a lot away from it. As the weeks went on, the, the family firmly believed they had a poltergeist living with them and called it Fred, and they tried to co-inhabit with it for a few months and everything other than you know the water on the floor and things like that, everything seemed to be going fine until it seemed to take quite an interest in their youngest daughter. And she was reportedly scratched numerous times. She kept waking up in the morning, she'd have scratches all over the back of her neck, on her arms, on her legs, things like that. And the family was getting a little bit unnerved, obviously, by this. Over the next couple of weeks, they sort of lived with it. They tried to figure out ways of getting rid of it. The last straw for them, they claim, was when the youngest daughter was going up to bed one night. The whole family was standing at the bottom of the stairs and their daughter's legs were lifted up in the air as if an unseen force had grabbed hold of her and they dragged her back down the stairs. Jeez. Mm. Yeah, at least, yeah, you can imagine sort of being there, what you'd do. So the, the, the family fled the house and it, from then on, it became known as the most haunted house in Europe for poltergeist activity which it still remains to this day. Are there still happenings going on there? Yeah, a chap called Bill owns it at the moment. It's become quite a tourist attraction, to be fair. You can you can pay, I'm not too sure, it's not a cheap place to visit, but you can go in group sessions over the night and you can stop. And it, it's kept exactly the same as it was back in the 60s. I've spoke to probably close to 100 people that visited and I've visited myself. It's a really cool place to go and see and definitely worth a visit if you're interested in the paranormal. The people that have paid to go and see it, they will give you very mixed reviews. Some people claim that absolutely nothing happened, it were a complete waste of money and they wouldn't go back. And then other people claim that there was just constant activity all night. The, the old bed frame shaking, the wardrobes, the windows, knocking, scratching, thrones, uh, stones being thrown, a whole wider range of, of different phenomena, which to me, almost makes it a little bit more credible because if yeah. it was a tourist attraction, think Alton Towers, they'd want to scare every single person that went in. Yeah, that would be rigged. Things would be rigged. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that, you know, it's only a percentage of people that actually experience things does make me sort of wonder, hmm, perhaps there is a little bit more to it than, than what we think. We covered this story way back when on a really early show of ours and we only touched on it really and reading your account of what actually happened was absolutely fascinating uh-huh. and as I said earlier it just kind of leads you through, oh goodness, what's the next story going <laughs> to, you know, what's the next story going to be? The way it's written as well, it's broken up into nice easy chunks so if like me, I struggle to read for hours on end, yeah. Bella can just, you know, sort of consume a book in one sitting, but I need to walk away and have a think about it and come back type of thing. But yeah, yeah really, really well written, as, as I've said before. The first story in your book was really what grabbed me because it told about the workhouses in the 17 and 1800s. Brilliant, an absolute brilliant place to go and visit. They invited me up to go in and meet them out of season, actually. 
So when I went up there, it was fantastic. She said, I'll meet you with the ghost team that are all volunteers and know all the ghost stories. So I drove up to Ripon. I was greeted by these eight or nine old guys, and they're all dressed up in the old Victorian clothing. And it was just a fantastic experience. And then they, they shared with me a lot of the ghost stories that they've either encountered or heard or you know experienced in one way or another. And then they gave me a full tour of the Ripon workhouse, including the areas that are, are normally off to the public. So that was the experience was absolutely phenomenal. Cannot speak highly enough. And just when you were talking about the conditions in these places and, you know, uh-huh. what they were fed and, you know, how they had to sleep on and, yeah. you know, the fact that the vagrants and tramps would end up sort of staying the night there and then be having to, to do the work and everything as well. You set a really good scene as to what the times were like back in there in the 17 and 1800s. Yeah, I mean... To be honest, the book's written well, like you say, and you can sort of get a, a, a sense of it. But until you actually visit, you just can't imagine what it was like. It's split into the different areas. So you've got the main people that stayed there permanently, and then the tramps that would just come for the night. And there is literally a desk at the front that's still there full of names. And they told me that the tramps would queue and queue and queue for hours on end to get inside. And when they got there, they was given the fumigated, and then they were searched for a penny. If they had even one penny on them, they'd be tossed back onto the street because they thought that other people needed the, the, the beds for the night more than they did. And then apparently there was, between the different workhouses around the UK, there was little bread stations about every 10, 15, 20 miles, I was told, something like that. So these tramps had stopped there for the night, do a bit of work, they'd get a nice breakfast or whatever in them. Well, I say nice, but, you know, they'd get a breakfast in the morning. And then they'd all walk to the bread stations 15 miles away they get some bread and then they'd walk another 10 miles or so onto the next workhouse and do the exact same. And that was the whole life. Wow. What were some of the experiences that they actually had at the Workhouse Museum in Ripon? So one story that really caught my eye was about the first wife of George Greenwood, who was the master of the workhouse originally. As the story goes, the guardians were the people that were responsible for looking over the workhouses and make sure they were all both run well and efficient and cost effective and everything else. George Greenwood's first wife was the matron and she spoke with friends at a workhouse in Wales and learnt their ways of disciplining the children and they claimed that a lot of the naughty boys and girls had been locked away in a cupboard at the back of the classroom and it was a very effective punishment and the kids generally behaved. One day a little five-year-old was being, as they put it, insolent, so most likely talking back or chatting in class or whatever. And the matron decided to lock him in the cupboard, as was the practice, at the back of the classroom. The only downside to this was, during his stay in the cupboard, she got a telegram from someone in Leeds saying that her sister was ill and in quite grave shape. So she immediately rushed off, got the carriage and went straight up to Leeds. She stayed with her sister for a few days. And when she returned back to Ripon Workhouse Museum, everybody was searching for this young guy who they all thought had, you know, managed to escape and run off and and fend for himself. The matron was quite scared and mortified, it's, it's claimed at this point. And she asked if anyone had checked the cupboard at the back of the room. They said that they'd not checked the cupboard, but they'd searched the whole classroom. So they all rushed upstairs immediately opened the cupboard and found the little five-year-old barely alive, barely breathing, limp as anything, obviously already malnutritioned from living in the workhouse anyway. So they tried their hardest to save the boy, and he spent a couple of days, I believe, down at the infirmary before eventually, sadly, passing away from malnutrition. And the matron was 
mortified by what she'd done. Yeah, no and doubt. Was very, yeah, she, apparently she was. She went into quite a state of deep depression over the next few months. In the turn of events, she was actually pregnant at the time. And a few months later, she had a baby herself and died during childbirth in a sort of Shakespearean twist, if you will, to the tale. So that's one that really stands out at Ripon. But the interesting thing is that ever since then, and even to this day, actually, I spoke to a few visitors up there who claim to have experienced it. They say that the woman still marches around the area, stamping her feet, wailing, crying, and shouting out for the little boy looking for him who was in the cupboard. You can only assume that the guilt, you know, stayed with her for a long period of time and she died with a broken heart because of it. That's kind of sad, really, isn't it? It's, it's very sad, yeah, you know. It's, it's, but it was the time when that was how they lived. Yeah. I'm kind of going to switch gears a bit and uh-huh. go back a bit to the chapter that you've done about the psychic controversy. Uh-huh. Can you talk to us about how when you go to see a psychic or a medium, yeah. some of the ways in which they draw people in? Basically, psychics will use numerous techniques to make it feel as though they are saying something very specific to yourself but in actual fact applies to almost everybody the most famous ones of these that people need to be aware of are called barnum statements They're coined by pt barnum who was recently thrust back into the public eye in the greatest showman movie it said that barnum was obsessed with psychics and the paranormal and things like this And he coined two phrases. One was, there's a sucker born every minute. And the other one was, there's something for everybody. And these were both aimed at charlatan psychics. So Barnum created, I think he made 10 statements at the time just to showcase what they were doing. But in reality, there's pretty much millions. And these are statements or ways of asking questions that can apply to everyone. So one of my favorite ones that I often use just to explain it is, they might say to you, for instance, you're very fun to be around and you're a great, great soul and can be the life and soul of the party and, and everybody wants to come out and have a drink with you and a dance with you and, and you know, you're so much fun. But then when you go home by yourself, you find yourself sort of reliving the conversations back over in your head and sort of questioning, you know, should I have said this different? Should I have said that different? What could, could I have done differently to, to make it a little bit better? And ultimately by saying something like that, all you're actually saying is that you've got an introvert side and an extrovert side, which is what everybody in the world has. And everybody goes back and you know questions things that they've done and, and asks things. But if it's a psychic saying it to you in a particular setting, it sounds extremely personal to what you're saying. Another good example is the way that they'll ask questions. Very commonly things like, we'll say you've, you've not been very well recently, have you? And by asking it that particular way, you can say, no, I've not been very well. And they'll say, yeah, that's what the spirits are telling me and you know you need to go to the doctors or whatever but you can say no i've been feeling fine and they say yeah they're telling me you're in really good health and so they're sort of adding that negative in by adding the not mm. and opening the question up to, to numerous different answers i must say quickly i am actually working on another book at the minute about psychics and for the last sort of eight weeks i've been seeing as many as i could possibly fit in And I've seen nothing but Barnum statements and cold reading. And then last Sunday, actually, as it goes, a guy called Paul Humphreys, I bumped into, I've never heard of him before. It must be quite popular because when I found him on Facebook, he had 12,000 likes. So this guy goes in and he he was phenomenal. And even now I can't explain it. He literally, he opened the show up 
with August 22nd, 2006, who died on that date. And I was thinking, what? No, that's unbelievably specific for a psychic. Yeah. And as it goes, someone knew someone who died on that date. So I'm thinking, well, he might have known him, maybe a lucky guess. He kept saying so many different things all the way through it that made me think, you know, this is, this is just crazy. But the absolute sealer for me, if you will, was at the end. He's from, I think, Scunthorpe or Hullpole. And we were down in Rotherham. So it's, you know, it's quite a distance, not somewhere he'd have been regularly. And there was a couple who came into the spiritualist church and they came in late. And I know they were from Rotherham because I've seen them at the same one before. So they came in late and they sat at the back. And then probably about 15 minutes from the end of his performance, he sort of looked over. He pointed to the young chap at the back and he said, whose 22nd wedding anniversary is it today? And the guy just looked at him. His, his jaw were almost on the floor and he went, my mum's. And then he started chatting about, a lo- yeah, exactly, about a load of other stuff. And I was just, you know, this book that I started writing, that I'll be honest, is... I'm ready for throwing the bin because I thought I'm just writing the same things over and over about these people being <laughs> fake. And then all of a sudden this guy pops up and really opened the can of worms up, if you will. But what? fantastic. That's what I love about the old the old paranormal genre because, you know, whatever you believe, whatever you think, at some point there'll always be twists and turns to change your mind. Well, I found it interesting when I was reading it that you said the psychic never just gets on the stage. I'm talking in a group setting, never gets on the stage and goes, oh, you right there in such and such row, seat, Uh whatever, and just delivers a message. Why it is always really ambiguous, but I never thought about it. Yeah, but it's true that they should be able to go, hey, your aunt so-and-so just said to me, whatever. But then again, we don't know how the message is being delivered to them, do we? Are they just hearing a voice that's, yeah, no. that's saying, you know, my child is there and it's my anniversary today, it's my 22nd anniversary? I know what you're saying, but for me, the strange thing is, like, I was watching a psychic the other week and at first they said they're showing me a big old Victorian-style cross pram. So that instantly showed us that they were seeing images. Now, were them images from spirit or were them images just... Uh, collaboration of what was the million or billion thoughts that were racing around the mind and then in the next breath the psychic claimed that the spirit was directly talking to her to the point where you'll you'll notice the showmanship when they're talking they'll say this spirit wants me to and then they'll stop and they'll look into the air and they'll say oh i can't say that as if they're physically having a conversation with the ghost yeah now my argument's always been for that if they are physically having a conversation with that ghost that ghost would turn around and say, it's me, Auntie Linda. I'm yeah. here to see uh, Janet in row four. She's got a red shirt on. Yeah. And that's what I always see. But then they'll always say, well, their energy is not strong enough. There's always a reason why it doesn't work. But do I honestly believe there's no such thing as psychics? I'm not saying that because I genuinely don't know. I just think, excluding Paul Humphreys, obviously, from last <laughs> week. Yeah. Up till now, I've not seen anything that's been enough to make me think, wow but then he's he's really you know opened my mind up to to new things so well we'll have to see if we can get in touch with him and see if we can get him on the show and explain to us what he actually hears and yeah you know, what it's like for him yeah. wouldn't be disappointed. the other thing yep. you mentioned a mind reading sort of trick that you and a friend of yours did with a deck of cards yeah 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 can you talk about that yeah of course a lot of magicians go from at one time doing tricks and card tricks and they will go into something called mentalism which is most famous now for the great Darren Brown obviously who, who was probably the UK's 
if not the world's best mentalist. And he always appears to be reading people's minds, but ultimately there's always, you know, a trick at play or something like that. A lot of mentalists will go on to be charlatan psychics and make a good a good living from it. So the trick that we used to do, just to sort of demonstrate how it might work, me and a friend would be set up somewhere and I would have a deck of cards. Now, the cards for the club's hearts, spades and diamonds, we would allocate a different surname for each one of the cards. And then for the ace through king, we would sort of give an initial to them. So like ace would be A, deuce would be B, three would be C, and so on and so forth. So I'd ask a spectator to sort of pick a random card. So he'd pick one through. And let's say he picked the two of diamonds, for instance. So I would have already allocated a surname for the diamonds. Let's just say Jones for argument's sake. So the deuce we already know is B. So I would say, you know, just uh, ring my friend up. Or they might not even think sort of in on the act and ask for Brendan Jones. So the second they ring up and ask for Brendan Jones, he already knows what the card is Mm. because the initials and the name say it. But by adding a little bit of trickery and showmanship and making out that you're getting a telepathic communication and let, you know, you just think your card and let the guy on the end of the phone just sort of slowly visualize it. And then after a few minutes, he declares what the card is and, and the audience is astounded and everyone's like, wow, this is insane. We've just seen some genuine ESP, but obviously that's not quite how it worked. And I don't know if you watch it, but all the Britain's Got Talent and they've always got these people on there who who can do these, you know, magic tricks or whatever. Yeah. And you're like, how? And I mean, we, we've watched it and we're sitting there going, how the hell did they do that? And you, <laughs> and you pick at it and you're thinking, well, no, they couldn't have done this because that wouldn't work or, you, you know, yeah. and then you, you know, just never really thought about it really would take just a, a really good setup, wouldn't it? Some way to make something that is easily explainable. Sometimes a lot easier than you think. The yeah. best tricks need absolute minimal work. I don't personally watch that show, but my partner does. And whenever there's anything like that on, she'll either shout me in to watch it or she'll show me the YouTube video that circulates yeah. instantly where it's gone off. I studied magic quite a lot when I was younger and, and mentalism in particular. I'm a terrible magician. I've got, <laughs> I've got ham fists and I've, I've got no sleight of hand or anything. So I you can literally see everything, but. That's why you it's, moved on um, to the parapsychology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sort of ruined it a lot for me because of the vast majority, I can guess one of three ways in which they've done it. But there's always the odd one that, that gets me, and I think oh, that's pretty cool. I'm not, you know, obviously taking away anything that they do because it is a show. They've got to... Oh, they've definitely got talent to do it. You know, they have to be yeah. able to command a room, really, and, and have confidence that it's going to work because if it didn't, yeah everyone would be like, oh, my God, did you see that last night? It didn't work, and his name yeah. is this, and, you know. Which is, which is exactly the same as psychics. I would be much more impressed if they came in and said, you know, this is the best mentalism show you're ever going to see. I'm going to tell you everything about everyone in the audience rather than nitpicking on specific things and effectively sometimes maybe delving a little bit too deep into somebody's memory. Yeah. Didn't Darren Brown do that at some point, didn't he? Yeah, he did one and then told them all afterwards it were fake, yeah. using mental tricks instead. Yeah. yeah. So but, so it know, can be done. Yeah, of course it yeah, easily, easily if you've uh, if you trained up in it. The big question is, 
and this is something that you have to think quite regularly about, is is there a line for psychics that they cross? Is what they do unethical or is it perfectly normal? I find it absolutely insane that a lot of hardworking people around the UK and all over the world, you see them on Facebook all the time. I've had an email off a, a Nigerian millionaire offering me seven billion and they hate it. They get so wound up that somebody's trying to scam them out of money, but yet they are queuing up outside psychics to pay 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds an hour for a reading. Yeah. And I sort of, yeah, I find myself asking a lot, you know, is the psychic trampling on the memory of a loved one or in actual fact, is the comfort that they're offering and the fact that they're still talking about that person creating a legacy. Be like a, almost like a therapy, isn't it? For, yeah. You know, and it is. There's such a fine line between the two of them. So I think that what we've got to make clear to people, because obviously we've got a lot of people listening to this show who do take comfort in those kind of things, is like you said, that seems like there are decent psychics out there who may have a gift, may have a talent, may be able to, you know, communicate with spirit. Yeah, because of obviously, if we'd we'd have done this this interview last week, I would have spoken a very different tone about him. But I'm an open-minded guy, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. I have my own opinions, but I'm always willing to look and see new things. And yeah, and it, it's completely got me thinking now. Hmm, it's just like anything else in life, though, isn't it? You could go to your car breaks down. You go to a mechanic, and that mechanic says this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Right, and and all of a sudden you're paying, you know, six, seven hundred yeah. pounds. When really, if you would have taken that car down the street just a bit, the other guy would have said, hey, all you need is this one thing, you know, and could have fixed your car. So in any area, in any topic, there's always going to be people with the integrity and honesty to, you know, and they conduct themselves that way. But you're also always going to get the ones who will exploit. Unfortunately, that's just life. So, yeah. You know, well, back onto the book. We've heard yeah, many. Yeah. We've heard many. T- <laughs> yeah, come on, <laughs> get Sorry. it together, Bella. Uh, <laughs> what book? <laughs> yeah, what book? Yeah, we've heard many times about ghosts that haunt the roadways. In fact, we spoke to Ruth Roper Wild about her book, The Roadmap of British Ghosts, on the show uh, a couple of episodes ago. The story that you recount that happened on Beck's brow was was fascinating. I have got a list of stories that I thought if, if you asked me to pick. Three of my favourites, I've got them written down, and Beck's Brow is by far one of my favourite stories. I think that on top of the story itself is what you found out about, I know it's not his real name, but Michael afterwards. Exactly. So, do you want to lead our listeners through the story? and the whole paranormal for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, so Beck's Brow is the B6478, which runs between Wigglesworth and Tosside. And it is a very infamous place for a great number of fatalities over the years from car accidents. And like with a lot of other things, you know, people driving too fast and driving conditions and everything else are often to blame because it is quite a, a windy stretch of road and not somewhere that you'd want to be sort of traveling unless you were in complete concentration. A lot of people claim that on Beck's Brow, there is a strange apparition of a full-bodied white lady that materializes along the stretch of road often on damp, misty nights, and she's believed to be the lost soul of a young 21-year-old girl named Leanne Walker, who was killed in the 1970s when her boyfriend lost control of the car on that stretch of road, and they both died. 
Interestingly, her boyfriend's actually never mentioned in the ghost stories, only ever Leanne that you heard of. Some motorists claim that the spirit can be seen sort of almost hitchhiking, if you will, at the side of the road. Others claim that she walks in front of cars. Others claim that she just appears and disappears. And some claim that she seems to chase the cars and run after them. The reason that she's there is not fully clear, but from the paranormal point of view, it's believed that perhaps they died very, very quickly when the car collided. So it's possible maybe that a soul was ripped from her body and therefore she's not actually quite sure she's dead, for want of a better expression, really. So I was looking through a lot of the accidents that had happened um, because my curiosity had been piqued by it. And I found one that went back to April 2011 from a guy named Michael. I did change his name, as I will get to shortly. And it does say that in the book. So Michael claims that he was driving very, very slowly along Beck's Brow because it was a very treacherous night and it was absolutely siling down with rain. He says he definitely was not going uh, over the speed limit anyway. He claimed that when he came up to one of the really sharp bends, which is where the vast majority of accidents happen, he saw a lady standing at the side of the road, soggy wet through and covered in mud. He said he'd never stopped to pick anyone up in his life before, but this lady didn't look ghostly to him. She didn't appear to be an apparition of any kind. He genuinely thought it was just a young lady that was that was struggling. So he pulled over at the side of the road, a few feet up from her when he'd stopped, turned back round to look, and she'd just gone. She was nowhere to be seen. So he called out to see if anyone needed any help. There was no answer. He said he waited a few moments just to see if she'd appear. She didn't. He sort of argued with himself whether it was his imagination or perhaps she'd been frightened by the guy stopping in the car and run off. So he, he carried on on his journey. As he got a little further way up the road, he looked out and saw the same woman, who looked like the same woman, running alongside the verge. Oh, wow. Was, <laughs> a, yeah, a little bit confused now because he claimed that he was, he was far enough up away that he'd been driving in the car that there was no real way that lady could have got could sort of caught up with him in his car. So he wasn't sure if it was the same one or pranksters or, you know, just, just not quite sure what was going off. But he decided obviously not to stop after the last one. So he carried on. <laughs> yeah. The lady at this point, from running sort of adjacent to his car on the verge, suddenly shot out. I always imagine it like a little cat you see running and suddenly they just shoot in front of your car. Run straight, jumped out in the road, straight in front of his car, spun out of control, completely ripped his car off. It, it was gone. Said so he careered off the lane into a tree that was standing at the side and basically stayed there for a few moments and got his bearings, although I did read in the report after that he'd actually been unconscious for about 30 minutes. Why? There was an excruciating pain in his chest and leg, but he was sort of alert enough to be able to grab his phone and call for help. Turns out he'd suffered a broken leg and very severe bruising across his chest from where the seatbelt had hit, but thankfully, you know, he was still alive and there was, most importantly, no sign of any young ladies knocking about that was that were injured or otherwise. His story was very strange to me. And it, the reason that I was so interested, because it was one of the very few ghost story accounts where someone's ended up genuine injuries that could have been yeah. life-altering or fatal. So I did look a little bit more into it. A lot of people claim that Michael's account was possibly put down to imagination or poor driving or you know, just, just a combination of different things. So I did look a little bit deeper into the story just to see if there's anything else that, that could be discovered. And one very interesting fact that I found out was on that night in April, with, back in 2011, he was actually tested for alcohol at the side of the road when the police arrived, which obviously is the general procedure for any road traffic accident. 
his test was positive and it was found to be over four times the legal driving limit. I discussed this with him after I'd, after I'd discovered it and he was absolutely adamant that despite not telling me previously was drunk, that the lady was 100% at the side of the road and that she definitely jumped in front of his car. And he firmly believes with hindsight that it was the infamous white lady of Bex Brown. Mm. I found it a little bit strange that it was only after I'd asked him about the alcohol consumption that he sort of admitted that he had been out and he'd been drinking. And I think he got banned from driving for a period of time as well. And obviously asked for his name to be changed in the book at that point, yeah. which does sort of, you know, it, it, it's very interesting, but it asks a lot of questions because, yeah. it, you know, on the one hand, was he just drunk? You know, he'd been out for a few beers, he'd come home, he'd written his car off, he knew this folklore tale, and he just sort of put it down to that just to try and get out of a pickle. Or was there something more to it? Because the, the story that he tells and, and how he tells it ties in very, very closely with, you know, tens of other accounts of people claiming to have seen this this alleged apparition on Bex Brown. And really, in terms of him maybe not admitting to you initially about his intoxication, it's that's uh-huh. kind of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of yeah, thing. Because if exactly. he'd have initially said, oh, by the way, I was driving drunk this one time and I saw this thing, would you have actually said, okay, well, I'm not going to bother pursuing that story? Yeah, I, w- yeah, I wouldn't have even listened Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, if I'd have found out I'd have been drunk on the night and, and that would have happened, yeah, I wouldn't have even entertained it. It's a really tough one because it's very hard to get into a book, people's facial expressions and emotions and how they're speaking to you. Yeah. But when I spoke to him, I genuinely didn't feel like he was lying. But my mind was telling me it was, if you know what I mean. It was the strangest conversation to have with someone it really was. Well, I like the fact that you kept that story in the book, if you like, because I think it shows your balanced approach to the subject. Exactly. And I also wanted to point out how ghost stories can sort of come on and develop. And that, you know, there's so many fantastic ones out there and everybody likes watching horror movies and and reading scary books. And, you know, being that armchair investigator who gets involved from the comfort of their own home. Mm. And, And it just sort of, for me, showcased that, you know, for as many good ghost stories as there are that could be real, you've also got to find the balance of the ones that might just be folklore tales passed on. It makes me wonder, though, it gives it a creepy element. The boy that was driving that had the crash, was mm. he drinking? You know, why is it that oh, he's... Oh, you mean the initial boy yes. who was, who was well, with his girlfriend? Yeah, boyfriend. Yeah, why yeah. is he not ever seen or talked about? It's always her. Exactly. You know, is she angry because... That kid was Maybe drinking. she's searching for him. You can only speculate, but it is interesting to think, why wouldn't he be seen? Exactly. There are endless possibilities, and it's, you know, it's something that makes the topic so fantastic. I think, for me personally, I think that if there was to be ghosts, and I think I discussed this in the book at one point, if there were to be in my own situation, the, the most common ones I'd believe in are what they call death echoes which are people replaying the death over and over and over throughout eternity or yeah. something they've done constantly in the life. Like the grey ladies you see looking out the windows, looking out to sea for the sons coming back from war or whatever, and, or, you know, people that have been murdered and, or, you know, died in, in pretty horrible, brutal ways, things like this. I just feel that it's possible, and I, 
emphasize possible that there's so much raw emotion involved with that that they could effectively, you know, scar the fabric of time, if you will. Well, that's the stone tape theory, isn't it? Yeah, and therefore just, you know, keep replaying it over and over. I prefer that hypothesis to the one that there is actually now this consciousness, for want of a better word, that is constantly living out that pain and that turmoil. Yeah, I wouldn't want to suffer that for no, hundreds for, for of eternity. years. I mean, that's a, that's a hell, isn't it? You know, yeah. I much prefer the idea that it's actually the environment replaying the scene and not some consciousness doing it. I certainly wouldn't want to be trapped in the torment yeah. for eternity. Yeah, your your worst nightmare over and over and over again forever. Yeah. I really liked the story about the Copple Flat Lane in Beverly with the hotel that's with the Phantom Hotel. Yes. I thought Brilliant that was story, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and I decided to add that one in because Phantom Hotels are actually more common than you believe. Generally all follow the same pattern of someone's been driving on a on a cold, damp, rainy night. They've usually been driving for a long period of time or they're overly tired and they stumble across this hotel that, you know, is nice and it's well presented. It's often got a bit of an old-fashioned vibe to it. They go in, they always claim it was either free or absolute pennies for the night and they've been well-fed and watered. They go home, they carry on with the normal lives. They think, oh, do you know what? I really want to go back and visit that place again. They go and it's just, it's gone. And yeah. No one heard of it or seen it or no idea what they're talking about. Well, we, because, you know, it's kind of what we do, we went on to Google and we yeah. searched for Copper Flat Lane. Yeah. And we found that that lane actually turns into another lane, which is called Killingwad Graves Lane. And it's like all one word, which is yeah. pretty interesting. But we also way back in the beginning, sort of when we started to interview guests on our show, there was a story that we told about a an army guy who is in sort of a convoy with other army vehicles. He was in the States, wasn't he? Yeah, he was in yeah, he was in Maryland, I believe. One of the vehicles breaks down and he gets to be the lucky one who has to stay with that vehicle until it can be recovered. And yeah. it ended up, you know, it was late at night and he could see across the road a diner, like an old-fashioned diner, which isn't all that rare. I mean, there are a lot of them in the States. But he goes across the lane and he thinks, well, I'll have, you know, I'll have a bite to eat, have a drink. I can see the vehicle. I'll get back over there quickly if they show up. Well, turns out that, you know, eventually he goes back over. He sort of takes a nap wakes up when the recovery guy comes and is saying to him, you know, it wasn't that bad. You know, I went across the road to this diner. And when they look across, there is a diner, but it's dilapidated and boarded up and obviously hasn't been used. So, so it reminded me so much of that, that obviously, but there is no hotel. Yeah. In your story. Oh, no, no. Yeah, there's not even a dilapidated one. It, it, it's yeah. Well, there, there is one sort of theory that it's, you know, it's possible that picture the thirsty guys in the desert walking and they see the mirage of yeah. you know, water and everything else. And, you know, is, is it possible that people are just overly tired, overly hungry, overly sleepy, overly thirsty, whatever? They're just so desperate for that bit of comfort that they, you know, imagine something to be there. Who knows? Or is there actually 
I don't even want to use the word ghostly because I don't think it falls under that category. <laughs> no, it but, doesn't. Um, it's, it's really interesting. But could it be something to do with, you know, if they exist, a parallel universe that's kind of merging with ours at a certain place? You Pokes know? through at times. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Is it some kind of hotspot for activity or something like that? Who knows? Who knows? But it'd be fantastic. If there was one paranormal phenomena that I could experience, it'd be a ghost hotel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one's ever had a bad experience in one either. That's no, right. <laughs> It's always a five star, isn't it? Yeah, it's always a fantastic thing. <laughs> I also enjoyed the story of the lady in the house who kept hearing the voice saying, Emily, where are you? Oh, you're there, Emily. Yeah, in Oak Ridge, Weatherby. Yeah. And that really touched a nerve with me anyway, because in my work, I, you know, I'm a carer. I work in a care home with a lot of people who have dementia, or maybe they don't, but they've come into the home because maybe they're, you know, they're sad. They don't want to be alone, whatever. And that was just really sad to think that a lady could hear that. But I did find it strange that they went from thinking that, you know, there's an intruder to maybe some sort of a bird up in the attic. I'm thinking, well, I don't think it was a parrot. (laughs) Yeah, this (laughs) this was the whole thing for me. The whole story, when you actually read it as a factual document, makes no sense. No, it's really weird. Yeah, it's a very nonsensical tale. If it were to be true, I would probably fall on the lines that perhaps it's the old lady's imagination. Yeah. Or... Maybe wishing that an old companion of hers was still with her. Yeah. Who knows? But it might be. It might be something unworldly. We just don't know. But it would just, like you say, you know, it would just, it was one of them stories that was as equally sad as it was nice. Yeah. And I just thought it was the perfect way to end the book. I'm not sure, but I kind of thought that that lady isn't there anymore, that there's somebody else there in that home. Yeah, yeah, I think she's, I think right, actually. It is sad when you think what the mind can do, you know. Yeah, of course. But yeah, it, it was very touching, let's say. Okay, so what was your favourite story in the book then? My favourite one, without a shadow of a doubt, was Paulington Woods in Aberford, up near Leeds. Paulington Woods' tale has everything of a sort of classic witchy ghost story, but there's a little bit of fact at the end that just makes it phenomenally unusual. And it starts with a Russian prince called, if I can remember how to pronounce his name properly, Ernestine Vladimir Zhrong. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a weird spelling. And his uncle was Cecil Gascoigne, Sir Cecil Gascoigne, and he owned Paulington Hall, and he was invited over for the summer. So when the prince came, he was said to be absolutely obsessed with steam trains and and rail engines and everything like this. So he decided that he would spend the week going up and down over Yorkshire on the different rail lines they had, which was at the time arguably some of the best in the world and gave some of the best views. And by all accounts, he had a really nice trip. On the seventh day, that's when things got really, really strange for him. So he wandered off into the woods just to have a little walk and uh, a little mosey, and he never actually came back, and he's never been seen or heard of since that day. Now, obviously, because he was of Russian nobility, there was a monstrously big search for him. All the police were involved, volunteers, everybody just searched the woods for any sign or trace of him whatsoever, and there were just none to be found. 
The strange thing was that all the bloodhounds kept circling around this one tree, and no one really could understand why. There were, there were no signs of clothing or blood or struggle or, or any reason that would have took the dogs to the tree, but it was all documented in the report. Now, that was pretty much the end of the story, and it, it would have ended there until 1997, when Paulington Hall was eventually torn down. And that's when the, it became quite mysterious in its own way. Uh, when the orangery was demolished at the back, the workmen found buried within the walls a pile of handwritten papers. This is all fact as well. These, these are on show in, in one of the museums, and you can go and see them. When they examined them, they was believed on examination from handwriting experts to have been written by Cecil Gascoigne's, shall we say, overly eccentric wife. Back at the time of the disappearance, uh, hired help on the estate would often whisper about Lady Constance Gascoigne's and her strange obsession with uh, anything occult, really. She was obsessed by it. And she was a very strange lady. She didn't like being in the public eye, whereas her husband, Sir Cecil, was quite happy to go to fundraisers and, you know, really be, be the big landowner in the area. Constance, on the other hand, preferred sitting in the orangery and reading strange books about witchcraft and black magic and locking her away in what she describes as her own private room, which was the orangery. When they read a little bit more into the papers, they found that a lot of them was concentrated around a certain tree within Paulington Woods. Now, the tree is really strange, and it's quite a tourist attraction to this day. It's split from two roots, and it almost looks like legs oh, uh, with a body at the top. Yeah, it's really weird. Now, just around the corner from this is another strange tree that I've actually put a picture of in the book, and it's, it's one of them trees that you look at that just sends a chill down your spine. It's really old and crooked, and it, it it's so thick, but so dead. It's you know, it looks like it's something out of a Tim Burton movie. It's really <laughs> worth it. Yeah, just just to go and have a look. So as they're reading through all these letters and they're seeing about these trees, and then finally they, they got onto the the part where the the prints had disappeared, which nobody was really expecting to find. Lady Constance's letters claimed that the prince had just been wandering quite you know, harmlessly around the woods and exploring the area on his last day when he'd accidentally stumbled upon Lady Constance Gascoigne and uh, quite a few of her friends who were in the middle of a naked ceremony of witches. The letter then goes on to tell at the anger that all the witches felt that they, how they described it, uh, this young man was enjoying the fleshes of their bodies while they were conducting what they believe to be a religious ceremony. She then goes on to say that the other witches were screaming at Lady Constance to render the young man dumb so that he couldn't tell of anything that they'd seen. Upon hearing this, the, the prince bolted off into the woods, really sprinted away towards the railway line, which was the only part of the woods from this point he knew he would be able to get back to Paulington Hall from. The witches all started to chant together. Lady Constance says at this point she heard the chant, but she was unable to stop it because they were all chanting so loudly together. Then right before their eyes, the young man screamed and writhed in pain as his legs turned to roots, followed by his entire body becoming the tree that you can now see to this day. Wow. Yeah, obviously the story is sounds like something out of a fairy tale, and, you know, you have to think, how can that ever possibly be true? Yeah, but like... then you have to take into account that the bloodhounds all kept circling that tree with the two legs, and that these letters of, of Lady Constance's, she bricked up into a wall with other witchcraft paraphernalia, and they'd been found, you know, a couple of hundred years after. 
Yeah. Why it's just would she a, brick them into a wall in the first place? Man? Exactly. It's just an absolutely phenomenal story and one that, you know, obviously a rational mind just thinks, well, that can't be true. But then when you sort of piece it all together, you just think, oh, that's, that's just really bizarre. Yeah, like, did she have to write it to get it out of her system? You know, exactly. So she knew she couldn't tell anybody because people would think she was bonkers. So yep. she writes it all Maybe down. Maybe she's not an about it, yeah, just needed to process it in her yeah. own way. And then she buries so, it in the wall so nobody, <laughs> you yeah, know, could exactly. find it. But the, the tree's still there, and it's still quite a big attraction up in uh, Paulington Woods. I remember rightly, when you go to Paulington Woods, there's it's... A sign posted for Fly Lane, I think, and you follow that track all the way down and it brings you straight to the tree and also the alleged Tree of the Dead, which is the one I spoke about earlier. Oh, wow. I think we'll have to do like a vacation one day and try to hit some yeah. of these places Definitely. so we can... <laughs> that was your favourite story. i got to say my favourite story is the one about York Library and it really brought me back to the Ghostbusters movie, you know, the first Ghostbusters movie where you've got the ghost reading in the library? Oh, the old chap with the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to be honest, when I was writing it, I kept I kept seeing that scene in my head. <laughs> in Ghostbusters. Oh, that was, yeah. That's a brilliant... I'm not going to tell our listeners about that one we'll leave them to to find that one in your that's, book themselves. yeah that's your dangling carrot yeah, no, to go buy the book that's a really good <laughs> that's a really good story so out of everything i think i already know the answer to this because of the conversation that we had earlier but out of the investigations that you've done has anything now has it totally convinced you of the afterlife and ghosts do you think that there are just too many stories now for them all to be folklore all to be you know, made up, or or do you think that it's tales? There's been nothing to convince me, but there's certainly been enough to take me from a hardened sceptic to, should we say, open-minded. Yeah, things that make you go, hmm. That, that's interesting, <laughs> though. If, if Things that make you go, hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's interesting because you just termed yourself there originally as a hardened sceptic. So, oh, yeah, so yeah. It has, when I set out there. So it has changed your opinion then? Yeah, it has changed my opinion, but not to a... A definitive, believer. yes, yeah. I believe it. A definitive yeah. believer. Oh, that's, that's but then again, on, on the other hand, this is how I always look at it, you know. Whether you're out in a haunted house or you're doing a stopover at 30 East Drive or you're going to Paulington Woods or you're just sat at home reading a, a horror story, ultimately it's all for entertainment. People will tell you that they become paranormal investigators because they want to know the truth, but the fact of the matter is... The truth for them, and you know, it's a burning question that spurs them on to go, and therefore offers entertainment. So if you're if they're safe and they're enjoying it, you know, that, yeah. to me, that's all it means. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, where can people find a little bit more about you? I'm on Facebook. If you look for Nick Tyler author, you will find me on there. Okay. Do you have a website yet for the book or anything like that? I've got a website currently undergoing, but it's not live yet, so I'm not too sure what the URL will be. Okay, well, when you get that, let us know, and we'll definitely mention it on a future show and let people know about it, okay? Yeah, for sure. And do you have a publication date on the book? It's September 2nd it comes out. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon, but it will hit the actual shops in on September 2nd. Excellent. So get your order in now, guys, with Amazon. As you heard, it is on pre-order now, so definitely recommend this one but these days anyone has the ability to write a book in terms of there's apps out there that help you that allow you to self-publish and all the rest of it and so without disrespect to some authors we haven't had any of them on our show luckily 
but some of the books that we've read in our interest of this subject have been slim let's let's say yeah and you can tell that they're written by someone who uh, okay has an interest in it but doesn't necessarily have the skill to to be able to put it across yeah i think you need to be a storyteller and i can honestly say this hand on heart that your book i said it at the start but it really does draw you in it encourages you to read more i'm not from yorkshire i've visited yorkshire but, you know, it doesn't necessarily hold anything to me, but I got something out of it because the stories could be happening here, you know, and you tell them in such a way that it brings you into it and makes you feel a part of it. So I just want to say from our point of view, we really did enjoy the book and we can only recommend it to our listeners. Brilliant. Thank you so much. If it's something you're interested in, I will offer you, I don't know if you can run competitions for your own listeners, but I will certainly send you guys a signed copy when it's out. And if you want to give one away, then you're obviously more than welcome. We would love to do that. Thank you very yeah, much. That would yeah, be amazing. definitely. No yeah, thank you very much. Well, listen, it's no been problem. a pleasure talking to you. The book, once again, ladies and gentlemen, is Haunted Yorkshire, and the author we've been speaking to today is Nick Tyler. Thanks once again. Thanks very much. I hope we all enjoyed that. Unfortunately, it's just me now because Bella's had to hot-foot it off to work. Once again, don't forget you can hit us up at all of the usual places: Instagram, Twitter. Uh, We're on Facebook now. We have a Facebook page if you want to check us out on there and maybe like our page. That would be absolutely fantastic. We've only got a couple of likes on there so far. We will give you details when we get the book of how to win that signed copy from Nick Tyler. If you want to send us an intro or anything else, you can mail it to mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk. But until then, please do stay weird, wacky and wonderful. See you guys. See (laughs) y'all. I'm going to get my ass kicked for that one.